Hello and welcome back to Unqualified Analysis, the show with zero qualifications that just keeps firing off opinions anyways. It is the college football edition uh, of this week's, well, the second weekly episode of Unqualified Analysis here. And today we got a hell of a weekend, big weekend of upsets, statement games, and bangers across college football. We had the Battle of the Cornfields that we'll talk about. Scott Frost finally wearing out his welcome. America's Holy War, Baptist, Baptist versus Mormons, nailed the finish there. A uh, whole lot, jam-packed episode to get to, but before we get into that, let's get into some quick headlines, shall we? Quick headlines! Didn't make a uh, didn't make a transition for that one. Kind of on a tight schedule here, trying to get done before it's tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Uh, either way, uh, just kind of running down a list here of you know some updates, some uh, interesting happenings throughout the sports world to get you kind of caught up and well rounded as far as your information goes. I say sports world, but there's really only one uh, one story outside of football. It's football season. It, it nothing else matters. Nothing else matters right now. So uh. Plane, plane flying overhead. Interesting. All right, how about that? Anyways, uh, got a bunch of headlines for you. Only one is not from football. Uh, football is love. Football is life. All right, with that said, let's get to the one non-football story. Robert Sarver getting a year suspension, $10 million fine following the NBA's workplace misconduct investigation. Robert Sarver, if you don't know, is the Suns owner, which I've never truly understood the suspension of owners. Um... What, are they supposed to just not take profits off their team anymore? Like, that's... I mean, you own it. How are you supposed to... <laughs> how are you supposed to be suspended from ownership? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I guess in the NBA, they're technically governors, but I digress. I'm not trying to make this an hour 40 uh, episode once again. Uh, you may remember towards the end of 2021, an article came out uh, on ESPN detailing racism and misogyny in the workplace, specifically pertaining to Robert Sarver's actions... And there was a lot of problems outside of that. There were some executives that made some questionable decisions reportedly, had some questionable behavior in the workplace, but just focusing specifically on Sarver because he was the one that got the, the punitive punishment, which, by the way, little tidbit here, uh, apparently according to Woj, he, was, he thought the... Uh, I think he was fine with a $10 million fine, but uh, was not fine with the year-long suspension. Apparently really fought that. Um, maybe he fought the fine too. Um, unclear on it. If you want to look up the, the specific details, go to Woj's Twitter feed. That's basically where I got this information from. Uh, that being said, uh, the original thing that kind of spurred this whole investigation, uh, brought it all to light, was a uh, article brought to light by ESPN uh, containing some absolute gems for the quote board, including, and I quote, you know, why does Draymond Green get to run down the court saying N-word, Sarver, who is white, allegedly said, repeating the N-word several times in a row? Uh, another fun quote coming out of this article. All alleged quotes, by the way. Don't want to be hit with, with slander charges here because one thing I know, I may be a small little podcast. We're growing here slowly but surely, but still a very small podcast here. But if there's one thing I know... Robert Sarver will bury you if, if you give him any room. So, hey, just covering all the bases just in case because you never know. He's got a lot of resources. Could pick on a little guy like me. Uh, that being said, I digress. All alleged quotes here, but gems nonetheless. This is my favorite one of the bunch, I think. These N-words need an N-word, Sarver told the staffer uh, of his largely black team, according to the executive. That was a quote. 
coming from Sarver when he was trying to explain to a staffer why he decided uh, to hire Lindsey Hunter, a black coach, over Dan Majerle, or Dan Danny Majors as the Suns head coach in 2013. Later, when he hired, obviously after he fired Lindsey Hunter, because that's always what happens with uh, Phoenix Suns head coaches. That's just run-of-the-mill sorts of stuff. Uh, when he hired another black coach, Earl Watson, in 2016, he explained it by saying Watson could, quote, speak their language, which I would counter with the question, what do you mean, Robert? <laughs> I thought we were all speaking English here, Robert. Uh, or do you mean they speak a similar dialect? Uh, also, uh, another fun quote coming directly from the horse's mouth here. Yeah, I understand what race you two are, Sarver replied, according to Watson. Uh, so I'm asking you, how bad do you want your job? And that was, in the, the context here, after the head coach, or the head of Clutch Sports, Rich Paul, who you may have heard of at this point, uh, took a swipe at Sarver's basketball knowledge and some heated contract negotiations for Eric Bledsoe. Uh, basically just said, you don't know basketball. If this was tennis, I'd be asking you about tennis, but we're talking about basketball. Uh, Sarver blew up, uh, essentially tried to say that... Uh, having both a player and the head coach in the same uh, agency clutch sports was a conflict of interest. Uh, that being said, that was countered by Watson, who said that uh, he had clutch sports when he signed with the Suns in the first place, so why was this not an, uh, not an issue there? Uh, that being said, I digress. Uh, another great quote, the final one before you can just, if you want any more of these gems, you can go read that ESPN article. I might link that in the show notes uh, for this one. Uh, but my final not my favorite. I think my favorite is these N-words need an N-word. That's that's just peak peak ignorance right there. And I love to laugh at ignorant people. Uh, that being said, final quote I got for you. I don't like diversity, Sarver replied. According to Watson and multiple well, and basketball operations staffer with knowledge of the interaction. And that was when Watson offered some guidance on how he would like to see the organization improve its diversity. And he didn't he didn't just come out and volunteer this this guidance like willy-nilly out of nowhere. Sarver was actually down there. Well, maybe not down there. I don't know where he went to. But he was talking to the coaching staff, everyone, asking about ways that the organization could improve. Watson said, maybe you should be a little bit more diverse. And Sarver said, I hate diversity. It's the worst. I don't like it at all. It makes it hard for people to agree, which I would say... I think that's kind of the point. You don't want uh, you don't want homogeny in the thought process. But that being said, uh, I'm gonna link that that ESPN article in the show notes if you want to just like I just did the the quick control F and then hit like Sarver and of course there was like a hundred thirty some instances of it. Really, you just scroll through the first like half of the article and man, you get some absolute gems of racist, ignorant quotes, uh, misogynistic quotes. I mean, he is just, he, he is a man that uh, has lived in his bubble for a long, long time. Um, but hey, at the end of the day, I'm not sure this, this whole suspension is going to mean a lot. I mean, $10 million is a lot of money, uh, kind of a drop in the bucket for a guy like Robert Sarver. So hey, this is more of a slap on the wrist than anything else. I think he didn't do himself any favors by uh by fighting it and reporting to be obstinate in the disciplinary hearings. I think this is one you just take your lumps and uh, move forward with it. I mean, feel good about the fact that you didn't get your team taken from you. Uh, that being said, 
Done with that story. Let's let's move on to some quick hitters here. First off, mostly just injury reports here from uh, week one. Uh, T.J. Watt reportedly does not need surgery. Might be back by midseason if rehab goes well. Reportedly, he tore the muscle around the pec, the pec muscle, I guess you could say, in in normal people terms, uh, instead of the pec ligament tendon. I don't I don't know what the hell it's called either way, uh, which allowed him to rehab it instead of going the surgical route uh not going that surgical route means he has a chance of playing again this season and hey if there's one thing we know about those watts is surgery be damned they'll play whether they want to or not i mean jj watts done it multiple times at this point i mean who would ever who would ever overhype an injury just to come back early from it that's preposterous no one's ever done that not not big ben not not anyone for that matter i mean it's it's just something you never see uh that being said Good news for the Steelers. T.J. Watt is really the one pass rusher, outside pass rusher, that is, that really scares you, puts puts the fear in the heart of the offensive line on the other side. So that's good news you're getting him back midseason, probably around the time that Kenny Pickett is starting to come into his own as the starter of the team. But I digress on that front. Moving down the line here, we've got the Cheats. The, yeah, the Cheats placing, not the Cheats, the Chiefs placing first-round corner uh, Trent McDuffie on IR. They just drafted him this year late in the first round with a hamstring injury. Uh, should come off IR after the four-week minimum, but that's a big blow to the secondary that really doesn't need injuries right now. There's a reason why they drafted him in the first place. They really don't have uh, a number one corner outside of that. I mean, Justin Reed, in, a, in addition to his kicking duties, which he's got a fucking cannon attached to his hip, uh, going to be uh, a lot to ask for on the back end, covering up a lot of mistakes from that secondary, particularly going up against this week on Thursday against that vaunted secondary of the uh, of the Chargers there in Los Angeles. Uh, moving on, we got Jerry Jones saying Dak will not go on IR on IR, rather, uh, could be back in week four, uh, in four weeks, rather, uh, following thumb surgery. He apparently didn't learn a damn thing from the Russell Wilson saga last year. You may remember Russell Wilson got surgery on mouth fingers, so I think it's a little bit different than this injury. But either way, uh, I believe the timetable was like six to eight weeks. Russell Wilson came back in four, uh, played like dog shit for a couple weeks, then magically around the time that he would have been coming back from the injury on the normal timetable, uh, he started magically playing well again. It's, it's amazing how that shit happens. Uh, I would imagine if Dak comes back after four weeks, uh, it's going to be to a result a lot like we saw from Russell Wilson last year. Especially, I mean, the thumb. I think Russell Wilson ended up breaking, I believe it was the pinky that he ended up breaking real bad. I mean, it took a, a hard right turn on him last year, I remember, on, on someone's helmet. Uh, Dak, I mean, the pinky you can go without to a certain extent. Dak, he injured his thumb, though. You can't really, I feel like you can't rush back a thumb. The thumb is so important, so crucial on your throwing hand, and it really it guides the ball, provides the accuracy you're looking for, essentially. I mean, the thumb and the forefinger do... I mean, thumb, forefinger, middle finger, they do the bulk of the work there as far as making sure the ball is going to the right place, I feel like. Not having the thumb at 100%, you're going to get some errant throws, you're going to get some short throws, you're probably going to get some bad play from Dak if he comes back early. Uh, that being said, Jerry Jones is Jerry Jones, so I would not put it past them to uh, rush him back out there. Cowboys just being Cowboys, man. What can you do? Uh, moving on, we got Mac Jones diagnosed with back spasms. He, um, I, I don't know if he left the game or not, but was reported to have an injury after that loss to the uh, 
to the Dolphins it was. Just had a whole brain fart there. Uh, but hey, no structural damage, just back spasms. So uh, good news for the Patriots on that front. I mean, hell, you might have, I mean, obviously, you you want your, your franchise quarterback to be healthy. You want Mac Jones to be healthy, but maybe... Maybe the maybe the, the Patriots might want to do a look at a bit of a, a tank job here. Look at a bit of a tank job. Uh, replenish the talent on their team. I mean, maybe Mac Jones being hurt the entire season, uh, not the worst thing in the world. I mean, you don't want it. You hate to see it. If he's healthy, that's the best case scenario. But if he's not healthy and you get like a top ten, top five sort of pick, uh, I mean, deep quarterback draft too. So. Quarterback needy teams in front of you are going to reach for some guys that maybe they shouldn't have, and you're going to have some damn good, I mean, you want to get some speed on defense, you're going to have a player drop to you there in that top 10 somewhere just because of the amount of quarterbacks in this draft. So, hey, mate, just spitballing here, maybe Mac Jones getting hurt isn't the worst thing in the world, but again, I say yet again, cannot stress this enough, him being healthy is the best case scenario. I don't want I don't want to be rooting for people's injuries. Uh, and with that, moving down the list even more, uh, we'll cover this on that with next week's NFL pod, but just Brownie the Elf. I mean, can't go down the rabbit hole now because, I mean, this will be a two and a half hour long podcast if I start going going down the Brownie the Elf rabbit hole and just how perfect Brownie the Elf is on that Cleveland field. I mean, it just it fits everything with the organization. But now... Uh, because there, there's college football to get to, uh, do yourself a favor. Go look up the Browns' new midfield logo, Brownie the Elf in particular. If you just do that, Google search, that'll probably get you to the place you need to go. I promise you, you will laugh your ass off wondering why someone thought. Not just someone, I assume this got through multiple, multiple, maybe even a dozen layers of bureaucracy before it saw the light of day. Maybe even more than a dozen layers of bureaucracy. With this goofy-ass looking motherfucker in the center of their field, the most noticeable thing about their entire stadium, the thing that people are going to see as they fly by on the way into Cleveland is this goofy-ass looking fucking cast-out elf from Santa's workshop in the middle of the Browns field. I promise you, just go look it up. You will say to yourself, yeah, this is the logo for my professional sports team right here. Something you can be proud of for sure. I just, I don't know how someone thought this was a good idea. That being said, I cannot implore you enough. Go look Go look at, at the new Cleveland Browns new midfield logo. It is, oh man, it, it is awesome. That being said, saving that for the next NFL pod, that is, that is just a juicy topic right there. Anyways, Chargers wide receiver Keenan Allen likely to miss Thursday night's game with a hamstring injury uh, against the Chiefs they're playing on Thursday. Got that all sorts of dyslexic and fucked up there as far as my speech pattern. I think he got the gist though. Keenan Allen, I believe... I don't know if he missed practice on Wednesday or not. Um, if he did miss practice on Wednesday, that pretty much tells you all you need to know. He's not playing um, tomorrow night. Well, tonight, as you're listening to this, tomorrow night as I'm recording this. Um, yeah, I think Keenan Allen, at this point in the season, Ian Rappaport reported he was had an outside chance to start Thursday. But being that it's only week two, you just, you're coming off a short week too. I mean, it's... You just played on Sunday. Now you're playing a hard-fought interdivisional game on Sunday too. You're playing another hard-fought interdivisional game uh, right after that as well. Well, I guess interdivisional game if you're if you're a Chargers uh, guy. Either either way, short week for this uh, this Chargers team. 
I doubt they're going to push Allen too hard to get back out there right away. I think probably go with Mike Williams as the number one receiver, uh, Josh Palmer at that number two. And I'm not just saying that because I picked up Josh Palmer on my fantasy team, need him to, to put out a good performance because I don't have very many wide receivers on my team. It's not not just for those selfish reasons. They do play a factor. They do play a factor for sure. But uh, you're going to want to keep Allen. I mean, this is a team that's built to win a Super Bowl, right? Built to at least go to the playoffs. You're going to want Especially, you don't want to mess around with a hamstring injury early on in the season that turns into a hamstring tear instead of a hamstring strain like it is now. And you need a guy like Keenan Allen down the stretch in the playoffs. So don't rush him back. Basically give him that extra bye week. It's like You get an extra half a week to kind of rest your body and such when you do these Thursday night games. Uh, give him that to get back. He'll be back for, for week three, if I have to imagine. And uh, last little update we got here in the quick headline segment, we have got uh, Raiders cornerback Anthony Averett uh, also gets thumb surgery, joining the club there with Dak Prescott. Will miss at least a month, uh, much like the Chiefs with McDuffie. Uh, this is the last thing the Raiders need in an already thin secondary Um Talked about it in the in the divisional preview. I mean, that secondary you're you're counting on Jonathan Abram to be a all star cover guy back there, and that is not a winning proposition. He again hit the hell out of people, but not a guy you want as your cover safety on the back end. Um, still got Nate Hobbs, so that's that's a plus there. Uh, that being said. Man, this Chargers, I mean, the Chargers tore him apart last week in, in, in spurts. I mean, really down the stretch, uh, tore him limb from limb, essentially. But, I, I mean, it only got thin going forward here. Only got thinner going forward here. Monday night football recap, it was Seahawks uh, hosting Russell Wilson in his return to Seattle with the Broncos. And the Seahawks shocked those Broncos in Russell Wilson's return, 17-16. I do distinctly recall myself saying that the Broncos were not going to lose this game. I think I almost made a reckless bet uh, that the the Seahawks would lose this game. Uh, Thank God that I didn't. And if I did, there's not enough people holding me accountable listening to this podcast for me to go and uh, follow through on whatever dumb bet I made with the, the closet of shame, pretty much. It's just me talking, talking to air right now. Uh, that being said, hell of a game, man. I missed most of it because I was editing Tuesday's episode, but I mean, I caught the, I caught the most important segment that we'll talk about here in a second. Um, I was thinking the Seahawks were about to lose by 30, and not only did, they not ha- did that not happen, uh, they didn't trail at all in this game. They scored on the opening possession and never looked back from there. It came down to the final Broncos possession with the offense advancing to the Seahawks 46 to set up a 4th and 5 with a minute 11 to go. All three timeouts, really an ideal position there. Uh, you think a little bit far away for a field goal attempt, uh, so you run up to the line, Quickly, you got three timeouts. You don't want to burn a timeout there. Just go for it on the fourth and five. You got Russell Wilson at QB. Sure, he wasn't playing great, I suppose, but he had 340 yards, so he wasn't playing terrible either. Um, you got that. You got Russell Wilson at quarterback. You got him for situations just like that. I say you get in there and you let him sling the ball. What actually happened? Well, and then you got three timeouts. You give the ball back at midfield, but you get a three and out. Uh, you don't run a whole lot of time off the clock, 
you get a pretty solid chance with like say 40 seconds left to go down there and try again to get a game-winning field goal. Uh, that being said, what actually happened, there appeared to be confusion down on the field as the Broncos took forever to get a play in and let the clock run all the way down to 20 seconds before burning their first timeout of the half. Uh, trotted out Brandon McManus for a 64-yard field goal attempt, which he ultimately just missed uh, to end the game, I believe, yeah, 17-16. already forgot the final score. My memory's doing great today. Uh, maybe the strategy was to run the clock down to give the Seahawks as little time as possible if McManus did make the kick. But the fact of the matter is, they had over a minute left in the timeout to burn. They probably should have just gone, it, gone for it on fourth down and took their chances trying to get a closer attempt. Um, McManus had the distance, don't get me wrong here, but a 64-yard field goal, I mean, it's only a touch more probable uh, to convert than a ha than a Hail Mary, and certainly much less probable or likely to convert than a 4th and 5 with Russell Wilson at QB. I mean, and you got Jerry Judy, who's a known very good route runner. I, I feel like it's something that you should have just gone for on fourth down. I mean, this is week one with a first-time head coach, though. There's bound to be some growing pains coming out of the gates. The backfield lost two fumbles as well, so it was a sloppy game all around, but being right there to win it at the end is at least encouraging, if nothing else. I mean, disregard the fact that you were facing up against maybe the worst uh, roster in the entire league, but can't be too harsh with my judgment of this team and the new regime after just one week of live fire. They got a good opportunity hosting a scrappy but under-talented Texan squad next week to uh, correct some things, kind of right the ship going forward here. I feel like they'll be just fine. That being said, head-scratching move when you got three timeouts, minute 11 left, fourth and five. To not just go for it there, I know I know some people would, would see, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think that's the field goal attempt, the 64-yard field goal attempt is the worst game management decision of all time. And I think if the plan was to kick that 64-yard field goal, run the clock down to 20 seconds so that the Seahawks had basically no hope of driving down the field if you made the field goal, I mean, been over this before, but I feel like that's not the that's not the worst strategy in the world, especially when you got Brandon McManus, one of only a handful of guys, maybe him, Tucker, Butker, uh, Matt Prater, you could probably throw in the mix as well, uh, on the list of guys that have the leg to make that kick. But that being said, you get Russell Wilson for a reason. I don't know. I, d I didn't like the decision. Uh, the win didn't come without cost, however, for the, the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, safety Jamal Adams reportedly tore his quad, going to need surgery, and will likely knock him out for the rest of the season. Um, I don't know if this is the worst loss in the world. I think when they first traded for him that this would have been a much bigger blow. Um, now, though, I mean, let's call it like it is. I mean, Jamal Adams... He's a physical player, a hell of a, I mean, a ginormous safety, if nothing else, but he's more of a box safety when it's all said and done. He's got a lot of the same issues that you see with Jonathan Abram, maybe a little bit better in coverage, but still, he's he's a guy that'll come down, hit the shit out of you in the run, basically pay, play that undersized linebacker role, um, but on the back end, not necessarily a guy you're going to be asking to go and play free range, free safety back there and just be a ball hawk. Now, he's a guy that you want to move around in the box, kind of rush the passer when you can get a chance with him. He's very good on the blitz. 
but not not on the back end. I feel like their their coverage might actually improve without Jamal Adams out there. There might be a bit of a bit of a stretch. But that is all to say this isn't this isn't a, a season ending uh, injury for this defense necessarily. It might be season ending for Jamal Adams, unfortunately. But this defense could still come back from this. That being said, don't get don't get too confident with your performance against uh, against the Broncos here in Week One. This this team still does stink. I, no two ways about it. You might be built to run the ball. Might be a little bit more competitive than people give you credit for initially, but. Still kind of stink at the end of the day. Uh, some notable performers, obviously talked about it earlier. Russell Wilson had that 340-yard game, just com- completed just short of 70%, had a nice 69% completion. Awesome there. Uh, 8.1 yards per attempt. Uh, only one touchdown, though, really had a, a, a... Seems to have had a Kirk Cousins sort of uh, stat line where he just kind of filled in the yards and didn't quite convert at the end there. I mean, sneaky, sneaky guy, but I know this play. I've seen this before. You're not fooling me. Not an awesome game from Russell Wilson, but serviceable nonetheless. That's really all you can ask for. Geno Smith really playing within himself on this one. 23 of 28, 82% completion percentage. Only 195 yards, though, 7 yards per attempt. So right on the average there for yards per attempt. Really a a run-centric attack for the uh for for the the Seahawks here really forgot the words there for a second um two TDs for Geno Smith no turnovers that's the that's the main thing didn't shoot the team in the foot as well as being efficient when called upon to do so that's all you can ask for from a guy like Geno Smith um in addition to him though really the guy that that won the game Geno Smith there uh the Broncos backfield did have a hell of a game though uh Melvin Gordon rushed for 58 yards just short of five yards per carry uh, also had two receptions out of the backfield, not really a whole lot of production there, just 14 yards. Javante Williams, though, had himself a game. Uh, had less rushing attempts, just seven uh, compared to Melvin Gordon's 12, but had 43 yards. That's a little over six yards per attempt. Also caught 11 balls out of the backfield, 65 yards there uh, to get him over 100 yards from scrimmage. Combined, Melvin Gordon and Javante Williams had... 180 yards from scrimmage out of the backfield uh, and 5.6 yards per touch uh, out of the backfield as well. Very efficient backfield in this matchup. Can I say backfield more times? We'll just have to see going forward here. That being said, moving out of that backfield uh, to Jerry Judy had four receptions, 102 yards one TD, and that TD came on a 67-yarder with 5:34 left in the second quarter to get the uh, the Broncos back in the game a little bit. Uh, Cortland Sutton had a solid game as well, four receptions, 72 yards, no touchdowns though. As we know, Russell Wilson only completed that one touchdown. Um, moving on to the uh, <laughs> to the unfortunate wide receiver group over there in, in Seattle. You got Geno Smith as your QB. I'm, I'm sorry. It is what it is. Uh, DK Metcalf had some running back numbers. Seven receptions, 36 yards. Uh, Tyler Lockett, only three receptions, 28 yards. Uh, paltry production in this one because it was just all centered around the backfield for him. I mean, Rashad Penny had himself a solid, solid game in this one. Um, outside of that, though, Bradley Chubb had a hell of a game. Two sacks in the game, including a, a sack to force the, the Seahawks 
Force a Seahawks three and out with four-ish minutes remaining. Wilson drove down the field on the ensuing possession before the clock management debacle, which led to the 64-yard attempt uh, to go ahead on the go-ahead field goal. Uh, that being said, solid win for the Seahawks in week one. They might not get another win this season, so if you're a Seahawks fan, enjoy this one. Uh, that being said, I expect the Broncos to kind of round into shape as the season goes on. They just turned over their entire staff, brought in a new QB. There was bound to be growing pains in the first place. I think the fact that they were in the game uh, might be giving them too much credit. They were expected to blow out the, uh, maybe not expected to blow out, but expected to beat the, the Seahawks soundly in this one. They're going to have to improve going forward, but I like their chances to do so. College Football Week 2. Yeah, let's just get into that college football, man. I didn't really do a um, an intro to that, but I figured I stopped, the, stopped talking at a really weird time to uh, get a drink. So, you know what? Just going to roll straight into College Football Week 2 recap. I mean, went over there, went over it there at the beginning, but crazy, crazy chaotic week. Upsets all over the place. Starting off with, I mean, the upset that was most costly for both the University of Nebraska and and uh, Scott Frost's coaching career. Scott Frost got the stanky boot after Nebraska lost to Georgia Southern 45-42. His final record with Nebraska ended up being a robust 16-31. And Nebraska is officially, officially dead in my book. Uh, with Scott Frost, with the Scott Frost hiring, there was at least an air of optimism around the program. I mean, you think he's coming out coming out from UCF where he just had an undefeated season. Uh, the, after he left, the team went on to have another undefeated season after that, I'm pretty sure. Ended up winning like 20-some games in a row uh, with, with the guys they had over there. A crazy, crazy good team that he put together in Central Florida. That being said, and I'm not sure I need to give you a geography lesson for you all to, to understand what I'm talking about here, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska is not UCF. I'm honestly put myself in a corner there trying to figure out where UCF was. It's in Central Florida. Know that much. It's in the name. Uh, that being said, a whole lot of reasons why it's not the same there. Uh, you, but with him coming in, you'd hope that you could reclaim some of the former glory from early 2000s, late 90s sort of action there. With his firing, I think any expectations that Nebraska fans had of reaching their former heights are completely gone. And let's not forget, the program initially tanked because they decided nine wins with Bo Pelini every season just wasn't good enough for them. They need to be competing for national championships all the time, man. We, we have a, we're a blue blood here. Everyone knows the red of Nebraska, one of the, the, the Cornhuskers, one of the most dangerous teams in college football of the 1990s whenever they were, I mean, getting undefeated season after undefeated season. They really did have a, a run there where they were just owning college football that being said, when they fired Bo Pelini, they just weren't in. They just weren't in living in reality, if you will. Uh, obviously, there was not in the. There was the not insignificant fact that people around the program didn't really like Pelini. Cursed a whole lot at people. Was a big old meanie at times. Uh, but Bob Kraft has never really liked Bill Belichick either, and they spent thirty years together at this point. So I mean, good programs make sacrifices in the name of wins. Um, that's really all I got to say on that one. If you want that they should have kept Bo Pelini around. Hell, I mean, I was a young, I was a youngin back then, just a young spry guy back when Bo Pelini initially got fired. But I, I thought it, I thought it was a good idea at the time because, you know, Nebraska, 
they were good all of my childhood, so I figure, hey, they got a, a good enough brand to get guys in there. Uh, as I've gotten older, uh, especially, especially seeing, I mean, they kept Mike Riley for entirely too long if you were trying to uh, get get the program back to where it, its former heights were. Um, that being said, they got no natural recruiting base. They're in a town in a region that is not attractive to out-of-state recruits. Um, and seeing as they they haven't been in a bowl game since 2016, that is six years ago as of this recording, they don't have a national brand to fall back on in recruiting anymore. I think no, the days of Nebraska being a 10-win team ranked top 10, uh, really certainly being ranked top five competing for national championships they're dead. They're buried in the ground. It's a lovely looking tombstone. People leave flowers there all the time, but let it let it die in peace, Nebraska. I think you had a good run there, but you're never going to get back to those heights ever again. And I'm more than willing to eat those words if you do find the initiative, hire the right coach, and end up getting this rig rolling once again. But with that said, good luck to Scott Frost going forward, but I am moving forward to the real crux of this uh, this episode, going down the uh, the top ten, the ranked matchups here. Alabama surviving a thriller in Austin. Quinn Ewers went down in the first quarter with a sprained clavicle uh, and did not return, leaving the Bama defense with a simpler game plan. That is, load the box, stop Bijan Robinson. Ewers is reportedly going to be out four games. Tough break for both him and Texas. Now sophomore Hudson Card is the full-time starter until Ewers gets healthy. Card was the one that took over after Ewers went down in the first quarter. Um, another possible option is getting Arch Manning to uh, yeah getting Arch Manning to enroll early at Texas. Valid? Could you do that? Because that's definitely something you could do. You could bring him in if you want to. Sure, it might create some problems down the line when you need to. Um, maybe bench him again, but hey, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, feller. I mean, maybe he can redshirt a year, uh, just enjoy a, a year of being the man on the Texas campus. I mean, that's basically why he decided to go there in the first place, right? I mean, just spitballing, just spitballing. I mean, Sark, maybe take a shot of whiskey. I know you're you're sober at this point. Might be an insensitive joke to make, but hey, a little bit of liquid courage. Go in there to the Manning household and be like, you know what? It's time for your son to embrace greatness a little bit early right now. Just just spitballing, just thinking. But hey, Alabama was unable to capitalize on the other side of the ball uh, as Texas's defense put forth an impressive performance, holding last year's Heisman winner Bryce Young to just five and a half yards per attempt. Uh, you may you may recall in the NFL the average passing yards per attempt was seven. 7.1 yards per attempt. In college, that's even higher, especially for a player of the caliber of Bryce Young. If you're holding Bryce Young to 5.5 yards per attempt, your your defense is playing their asses off in this one. In the end, it came down to a dramatic sequence in the fourth quarter with Texas backup QB Hudson Card leading Texas down for a go-ahead field goal. Minute 29 to go before the reigning Heisman winner Bryce Young did what he does best, led Bama down the field to kick a game winner with 10 seconds left. Young in the fourth quarter was unconscious, unconscious rather, which is the right word to put in there. He was 15 and 19, 136 yards uh, in the fourth quarter alone. I think he only had just over 200 yards in the entire game, so he really turned it on once the fourth quarter happened there, uh, which is really all you want to see from from a quarterback of his caliber um, just win us the game when it's all said and done. I mean, the, the the numbers, you'd love them to be pretty, but if they're not pretty, 
have him play great when it's when it counts the most, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, clean game on both sides of the the ball, though, minus the Ewers injury, uh, with neither team committing a turnover at all. No no fumbles. Um, I believe no fumbles at all. No lost fumbles. No no fumbles recovered by the team. Just a, a clean game. No interceptions. Just a clean, physical, defensive game overall. I mean, H- Hudson Card wasn't a world beater by any stretch of the imagination, but to go. Go out there, complete 64% of his passes, not commit a turnover against a perennial top-level defense in Bama. I mean, it's nothing short of impressive in my mind. I mean, that might be the toughest test he faces for the rest of this stretch that he'll be asked to start of the defense on the defensive side of the ball, that is. Um, Oklahoma with Brent Venables in there now will be a stiff test, but even that team doesn't have the sheer talent that Bama is sending out there with Will Anderson and the boys coming at you, specifically Will Anderson He's a horrifying, horrifying, ridiculous athlete uh, that showed out when it mattered most. A lot like Bryce Young got a late sack to kind of force a, a, another possession for Bama there. Uh, with that said, UTSA this upcoming week is going to be a test for Card right out of the gates. Uh, Low-key a test. I mean, a lot of people don't see UTSA and think, yeah, that's a, that's a stiff test. But they had 13 wins last year. Uh Returned a lot of guys, lost a lot of guys too, including that freak Tariq Woolen. I've uh, talked about him before on this one. I really like his pro prospects. I digress on that front though. UTSA coming in this week feels like a trap game. The rat poison tastes really, really good. Uh, they play, the, the Texas plays them at home, and the defense doesn't seem to be too scary, but UTSA played Houston close to start the season. They're coming off a 13-win season last year, so I think they're going to play Texas close in Hudson Card's opening week. But if he can get through that, I think he should be good to go. Uh, going to be hard with Oklahoma, but at least you'll have some experience under your belt at that point. On Bama's side, you would have liked to see a more comfortable game, but a, a win is a win. Uh, you went to into a hostile environment against a very talented Texas squad, uh, escaped with a win, that's all that really matters at the end of the day. Texas had 25 first downs to Bama's 16. Really, when you lose the the statistics like that, you lose the statistical battle, uh, there's really only so much you can do. Uh, a few notable performers in this game, though. Xavier Worthy for Texas, uh, the sophomore wide receiver, still a year out from being draft eligible, and he's going to need to put on weight, but he's been a star at Texas from day one last year. I mean, he, he made the, made the podcast in the inaugural version of this show. Uh, and I think he's got a future at the next level. I think he's very, very good. Um, again, going to need to put on some weight while still maintaining that quickness. He's only about a buck 60 right now, but still got another year to do that. And they'll certainly do that at the next level. So, I'm very excited to see Xavier Worthy going forward. Five receptions, 97 yards, solid performance out of him. Um, behind him, Bijan Robinson had a tough game on the ground, but was a weapon out of the backfield. 21 rushes for 57 yards, so that's just below uh, three yards per attempt or yards per carry there. Uh, but did have a, t- a touchdown. Through the air, though, three receptions, 73 yards, uh, really prolific through through the air, making plays out of the backfield. He's going to be a damn good player at the next level with that versatility. Really, if you can run between the tackles, which usually Bijan Robinson is more than capable of doing, and catch the ball out of the backfield, I don't know when you're going to get drafted. I don't know how highly touted of a prospect you are. 
But if you just have a good 40 time in there too, maybe maybe good good short 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 shuttle whatever the hell measures your quickness in there. I mean, you are going to get drafted, you are going to make contributions. And honestly, a guy like Bijan Robinson, the level of talent that he is, probably going to make a Pro Bowl at some point. He's a very very good player uh, for Alabama running back Jace McClellan. Not to be confused with Chase McClellan, that is J-A-S-E, Jace McClellan, uh, had an efficient day on the ground, ending with six rushes for 97 yards, most of that coming on an 81-yard running TD late in the first quarter. Uh, Quinn Ewers and Hudson Card failed to throw a touchdown pass, but combined for 23 of 34, uh, which is, you know, basically two-thirds of the passes completed, uh, 292 yards. Uh, 8.5 yards per attempt, 8.6 to be exact, zero turnovers against a highly talented uh, Bama defense. I think you can only be impressed with what Card and Ewers threw out there. And really, if you're if you're Sark, you can only feel vindicated with what they put out there as well, being very, very prepared for what Bama was throwing at them. Uh, that being said, all you can really ask for from Bama in this one is to make it through with the win. You were on the road, you were in Austin, uh tough, hostile environment. One of the more hostile environments in all of college football. Really, really a great environment for, for the Texas Longhorns to play in. Um, you get through that. That's all you can ask for. Um, you avoided the rat poison here. I'm sure there will be more rat poison to come down the stretch. Uh, but going up against a, a quality Texas team like this and just come out of here with a win, that's really all that you can ask for for Bama. Uh, moving on, though, uh, really the stunner of the day outside, well, Scott Frost losing is something to be expected. What am I saying? But Marshall stuns number eight Notre Dame 26-21. Weird score of the day in this one. A hot start for first-year head coach Marcus Freeman. 0-2 this season, 0-3 overall, including last year's Fiesta Bowl. Uh, notable performance in this one uh, for Marshall, the running back, Kalan Laborn. Laborn? Kalan Laborn, I think it is. Sorry. Sorry to Kalan Laborn. I, I love you very much, sir. Don't know who you are, but I love you. Uh, had 31 rushes, 163 yards. Really put the whole damn team on his back in this one. Uh, 5.3 yards per attempt and a TD to boot. Didn't catch anything out of the backfield, but when you got 163 yards on the ground, hell, you don't fucking need to. Um, Marshall quarterback, uh, Henry Columbi went for, well, grad chance, grad, grad chance for at that, coming from Utah State to Texas Tech, then Texas Tech to where he is now at Marshall. Henry Columbi went 16 of 21, that's 76% uh, completion, had... 6.9 yards per attempt, nice, 145 yards to go with that. Uh, one TD and zero turnovers as well. So, wasn't great, wasn't spectacular, but did not shoot the team in the foot either, and that's all you can ask for out of a game manager type of player. Uh, on Notre Dame's side, had quarterback Tyler Buckner, Butchner, Buckner, hard hard to say, uh, 18-32, which is just over 56%, uh, 201 yards one TD, uh, that was a, a rushing TD, though, and no passing TDs. Also, threw two interceptions, including a pick six with four and a half minutes remaining in the game to ice it for Marshall. Put him up for good. I think that was the last score that Marshall had. Ooh, excuse me. Put him up 26 to 15 at the time. Um, not a great... Not a great game for Tyler Buckner after putting up some solid uh, solid numbers against uh, the Ohio State defense. 
not really sure how Ohio State's defense comes out looking after that. I feel like if you give up after what Tyler Buckner did against the the Marshall defense, after doing what he did against uh, against that that defense week one in Ohio State, I feel like you might be a little bit concerned if you're an Ohio State fan that you let that that Notre Dame QB that looks like a stereotypical Notre Dame QB come out there and basically you know hang 10 yards in attempt on your head. Not not the greatest thing in the world, but I digress there. Uh, best player on the field in this one, outside of Kalan Labor, Laybourne, rather, sorry, keep fucking up his name. Um, Notre Dame tight end Michael Mayer, another one, a long line. I mean, you remember, oh, at least I remember Kyle Rudolph, um, almost said Zach Elfline, definitely not a Notre Dame product. Um, Tyler Eifert was the guy I'm thinking of, really Talented tight end, probably should have been the best of them all. Just had all those injuries going for him. But I mean, yeah, I can I can go down the list of Notre Dame tight ends. Michael Mayer is the next in that long line. He had eight receptions, 103 yards, one touchdown. Uh, as far as the team rushing goes, Marshall fared much much better than what uh, than what Notre Dame did. They had over 200 yards, 219 to be exact. Uh, 4.4 yards per carry, relatively efficient there. That's even accounting for the sack yardage as well. Notre Dame, on the other hand, after having a terrible performance last week, put up another bad performance in this one. 130 yards, only 3.5 yards per carry. And when your quarterback isn't playing well, that's simply not going to cut it. That's how you come out here and score just 21 points against a Marshall. Going against some better competition, I would be very worried about Notre Dame going forward here. That being said, at least they saved us a lot of uh, they saved us a lot of drama by losing now and uh, getting them out of the playoff discussion. I didn't want to I didn't want to stand on on the the soapbox again and be talking about how Notre Dame is just going to be put in the playoff and get waxed first week of the playoff. Uh, now I can now I can live in peace and just know that it's going to be Alabama and Georgia again, probably in the title game. That being said, I've digressed enough to where I think you can all realize that I don't have any more notes for this game. So, hope you survive the season, Marcus Freeman. Not not off to a hot start, and I'm sure those Catholics over there will be forgiving. It's in their religion, of course. You know, forgiveness, turn the other cheek. I'm sure they won't try to burn down your house if you go 0-4. I mean, just a just a thought. Probably not going to happen because they're just such good Christians. That being said, might want to get a security system. Just just thinking out loud here. That being that being said, should probably move on to the next episode before I say something that really is dumb. Anyways, App State upsets number 6 Texas A&M at Kyle Field of all places, 17-14. And what can I say? Texas A&M's going to Texas A&M. Death Taxes, Texas A&M losing games they shouldn't lose. It's just the way of the world, and it happened again on Saturday as App State comes into College Station, shocks the number six team in the nation, shocks the media world who, you'd think, this happens every goddamn year in some way, shape, or form. They go up against usually an unranked team, sometimes a later top 25 team when they're ranked as high as they're probably ever going to be ranked this season, and that team either beats them at home or comes in and shocks them. Either way, it happens every single year. And still, the media is like, oh, man, the recruiting class, it's so good. Jimbo Fisher's never cheated before in his life. Well, I think only Jimbo Fisher is saying that. But you know, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, Texas A&M gets all this love for all these recruits they get. Uh, but at, when it gets down to it, bottom line, Texas A&M never ended up leading in this game. They go up against teams like App State, 
You get a few of these a year where they just come out and lay an absolute egg. The App State offense never dominated going up against that staunch AM defense, but they ran the ball effectively and won the turnover battle two to nothing. That's really the difference in this game. As a result, App State dominated time of possession, doubling up AM's time of possession 41-29 to 18-17. I'm that that that's minutes there, not not score updates. I'm kind of do that in the most uh, dumb way possible. 41 minutes, 29 seconds to uh, AM's 18 minutes, uh, 17 seconds. That was a little less confusing. Either way, nothing exemplifies this dynamic more than the drive when App State hit the go-ahead field goal in the fourth quarter. App State ran an 18-play, nine-minute drive through the end of the third to the middle of the fourth to set up that field goal to go ahead, and they were reeling off five, six-minute drives, basically every possession. They dominated Texas A&M's defense uh, up front, absolutely whipped them in the shape. I mean, Chase Bryce didn't necessarily, he wasn't necessarily a world beater, only had 15 of 30 passing, 134 yards, uh, four and a half yards per attempt, which great running back numbers, not necessarily uh, the quarterback numbers you're looking for, uh, but one touchdown, zero turnovers, that's really what you can ask for. I mean, if you're not going to have a good game, don't shoot the team in the foot. In the end, neither QB played well, but App State was just a more disciplined squad, and that won them this game. The first of Desmond Howard's playoff picks to lose on Saturday, and they would be far from the last by the time it was all said and done. Some notable performers outside of Chase Bryce, though. Texas A&M QB Haynes King had a robust uh, 13 of 20 at 65 percent for those of you doing the quick math at home uh, for 97 yards that's just 4.9 yards per attempt not too too much better than what Chase Bryce put out there uh, but didn't have a touchdown also didn't have a turnover but didn't have a touchdown really you think with Jimbo Fisher in there being the offensive background guy that he is maybe your quarterback would have a little bit more consistent play Maybe, if you go back through the, the history of Jimbo Fisher's quarterbacks he's had, maybe he'd have one that, you know, played well at the next level, especially since he's getting high-level four-star, five-star QBs basically every single class at this point. I mean, maybe maybe something to look at going forward if you're a, if you're a Texas A&M administrator. That being said, the buyout is so ridiculous, what are you going to do besides keep rolling with him? Uh, that being said... Uh, App State running back Cameron Peoples really was the star for uh, App State in this one. 19 rushes, 112 yards. That's just short of six yards per carry. Uh, No touchdowns, but very, very efficient on the day. Uh, For Texas A&M, running back Devin Achain, Achane, don't know exactly how to pronounce his name, but he was the sole reason that Texas A&M was even in this game. Had all of their point production, 10 rushes, 66 yards, had a rushing touchdown, also returned a kickoff for a TD late in the third quarter. Uh, like I said, accounted for all of the scoring outside of the extra points for Texas A&M in this one. Um, really, Texas A&M just being Texas A&M, you expected this at some point. Maybe you didn't expect this uh, coming at home versus App State, but I knew they weren't going to cover 18.5 points versus App State. That simply was not going to happen. So, with that said... I anticipate Texas A&M losing to Mississippi State here in a few weeks. Just going to put it out there. Just going to let that breathe. 
I can't wait to get into SEC play for Mississippi State. Anyways, moving on from that sad Texas A&M team to a couple teams with a little bit more, a little bit more zhuzh in their game. Number 21, Tennessee, outlasting number 17, Pittsburgh, in an OT thriller at Neyland Stadium, 34-27. to uh, Gonna beat this drum as much as I can this year, but Hendon Hooker is an NFL QB, and he should be a first-round pick in this upcoming draft. He needs to work on being consistently accurate, but he can make every single throw you need him to, uh, and he's shown an aptitude for running without putting himself in harm's way. Um, True, last year he did get an injury towards the end of the game uh, in one of those games, but throughout this game in particular, he was able to... I mean, run when he could, but get out of bounds when it suited him, sly when he could. Uh, he was able to to not get himself in harm's way. I think in the right situation, Hendon Hooker could be a star at the next level, bar none. And in other words, please, God, do not let him go to the Atlanta Falcons. He's big, he's smart, he's fast, he's everything that a modern QB uh, should be in, in the modern NFL. Um, so yeah, please God, fingers crossed, don't let him go to Atlanta. That being said, give Arthur Smith a QB. Might be cooking with gas there, so you know what? Don't let him go to Seattle. That's my only, that's my only thing. Don't let him go to Seattle at the end of all of this. Um, that being said, uh, guy with binoculars just milling around, another, you know, this is just something that I saw during the broadcast, something that isn't about the game at all, but something that made me laugh a little bit during the game. Whoever the guy was with the binoculars just milling around in the background is Sean McDonough and Todd Todd Blackletch's two-shot eating pizza. Don't know what he was doing here. Just the way Sean McDonough looked at this guy, like, why are you here right now and why are you eating pizza on live television, just brought so much joy to my heart. I mean, it's the kind of chaos that you only get to see on live television because dumb shit like that gets edited out in post when you're, when you're editing a TV show. I love the, the pure chaos of that moment where I don't think he was supposed to be in the shot. If he was supposed to be in the shot, obviously no one told Sean McDonough. <laughs> because Sean McDonough was looking back at him like, what the hell are you doing here? Why? We're doing a TV show right now. This is live TV. Why Why are you here? Um, fairly certain he was the owner of the restaurant they were talking about where the pizza was from, I want to say, uh, at the time. But the way Sean McDonough turned and looked at him while he was just awkwardly standing there eating pizza, I'm not sure, honestly. He might have just been a guy that was just a PA back there, kind of got a slice of pizza. Um, Todd Blackledge was was kind of motioning towards him, so maybe he got confused and said, hey, I want to come on want to come on camera. Uh, I'm just going to stand here awkwardly, eat this pizza, and be very happy with it. Um, who the hell knows, but it was one of the best moments of the entire game, and it was a very good game. I just love to see the dumb shit like that happen, and that's why I, why you got to love live sports, live television. Uh, that being said, I digress from that into the actual football. I don't know who Cedric Tillman is, quite frankly, but that's another guy that Tennessee has who I think could go pro, could be a very good pro. Dude's got size and straight ran by corners on, a, on multiple occasions in this game. Was the leading receiver for Tennessee. I mean, he plays in that Josh Heupel offense that's going to do him some favors. I mean, Josh, Josh Heupel, absolutely incredible coordinator of the offense there. Uh, with Tennessee and with UCF even before that. Um, Cedric Tillman, with what he's got. I mean, he's already built like a pro receiver I don't know if he's going to get drafted in the first round or anything like that. I think he is going to get drafted in the first half of the draft, if nothing else. 
And again, if he goes to the right situation, I feel like he could play really, really well at the next level. That's just the guy I'm calling my shot now. I like to do that a little bit. It's exhilarating to maybe be completely wrong or be really, really right way earlier than everybody else. I mean, it's just, it's it's the, it's the exhilaration of, of hot takes. Let me just say that. Uh, anyways, neither team was able to pull away in this one. Uh, it was close until the very end. In the end, came down to Tennessee's defense making a fourth down stop in overtime to seal it. Solid win for Tennessee and a huge blow to Desmond Howard's proposed playoff bracket after another team loses. First, it was Texas A&M. Uh, I believe they had Notre Dame in there as well. Just a brutal, brutal week for uh, for Desmond Howard's playoff bracket. I think the only one not to lose... Fuck, I don't even remember who the last one in their playoff bracket was. I don't think he had Alabama in there. So, yeah, he was he was smoking that good good on that day that he made that playoff bracket. Uh, that being said, tied the turnover battle 2-2. So, probably a bit of a reason why it was so close. Neither team had a, an edge there. Uh, notable performers in this game, though. The QBs on Tennessee side, Hendon Hooker. Went 27-42, which is 64% solid completion percentage there. Uh, 325 yards, which is lucky 7.7 yards per attempt. Two touchdowns, no turnovers. Very, very good game from Hendon Hooker, which we're accustomed to seeing at this point. Particularly going into Pittsburgh, though, against a very good Pittsburgh defense. I mean, color me impressed as hell with what I saw from Hendon Hooker. Again, got to get that accuracy a little bit more consistent, but... Most of the time, he's accurate as hell, and he can run and make good decisions. What more could you want from your quarterback? On Pittsburgh's side, Keaton Slovis, uh, 14-24, that's 58% completion, uh, 195 yards, 8.1 yards per attempt. Uh, had one TD, two turnovers with one interception and one lost fumble. He sustained an injury at the end of the first half. I believe on a running play, Pat Narduzzi ended up taking a lot of the blame for running him on the goal line, I believe it was, uh, late in the first half. Ended up getting him hurt. I don't know if it was a shoulder injury or what, but he did not return to the field in the second half. So, it was Pittsburgh backup QB, Nick Patty, who brought in uh, who they brought in in the second half, and he did not play well. Went 9 of 20, uh, 79 yards, just 4 yards per completion, a flat four yards per completion, pretty much actually a little bit less when you do the, the straight math of it. Um, one TD, zero interceptions, didn't didn't throw the game away by by turning the ball over, but also didn't do him a whole lot of favors by by winning the game either. Um, outside of Hendon Hooker outplaying Keaton Slovis and whoever the hell his backup was, Nick Patty to be exact, uh, in the backfield you got Tennessee running back Jabari Small had a had some pedestrian numbers, but did score two touchdowns in this one. And on Pittsburgh's side, had a bit more of a star performance with Israel, ooh, Abanaconda, Abanaconda, I think that's his name, uh, 25 rushes, 154 yards, a little over six yards per attempt. One rushing touchdown, also had one reception for a 21-yard gain, and ran for a 76-yard TD in the first quarter. That was his one rushing TD. Didn't need to put an and in there. But here we are, aren't we? Um, he probably, he deserved, I mean, he was the player of this game uh, outside of, of Cedric Tillman and maybe maybe Jalen Hyatt to a certain extent. Cedric Tillman maybe a little bit more so. But 
Israel Abanikande, Ab- Ab- almost said Adesanya or Abasanya, whatever. I, weird bastardization of the two names there. Uh, really, the way he played, deserved to win this one. Not that Tennessee's defense is the most stout in the world, but coming in there and rushing the way he did, reeling off that one big gain in the passing game, getting 175 total yards on 26 touches. Not much more you can ask for out of uh, Israel Abanaconda. Really challenging myself by reading that name over and over here. Um, as for other notable performers in the receiving core, Tennessee's top two wide receivers were Cedric Tillman with nine receptions, 162 yards, one touchdown, and uh, wide receiver Jalen Hyatt, 11 receptions, which is a career high by actually six catches and uh, 73 yards. So he had some basically some running back numbers here. But, extra efficient running back numbers, but running back numbers nonetheless. I assume he was catching a lot of a lot of bubble screens, a lot of a lot of five to seven yard gains there, uh, with some with some bigger gains kind of interspersed throughout. Uh, that being said, on the Pittsburgh side of things, a bit more even performance here, uh, with wide receiver Gavin Gavin Bartholomew uh, leading the pack with 84 yards on five receptions, one TD, uh, with wide receiver Jared Wayne coming in just behind him at seven receptions, 82 yards, one touchdown. Uh, in the end, came down to Hendon Hooker just being flat out, head and shoulders, really an entire body's length better than what Nick Patty is, in my opinion. If Keaton Slovis was in there, I mean, still, Hendon Hooker is a much better player than Keaton Slovis, but at least with Keaton Slovis, hell, had was on pace for 400 yards after the first half. Get him another half of play. Who knows what happens in there? Maybe Pittsburgh even pulls this one out. But luck of the draw, Tennessee ekes it out in the end. Solid, solid win for them that uh, propelled them up the standings a little bit uh, into the teens at the very least. Uh, moving on though to another SEC, we uh, S two SEC. What Jesus Christ? Two SEC East teams. As I stumble and bumble through this uh, headline here. Number 20, Kentucky tamps down the hype in Gainesville, winning decisively over number 12, Florida, 26-16. to Neither offense really shined, but the defenses were on full display in this matchup. Florida actually led this game going into halftime, uh, but Kentucky's defense gave the Gators offense the hands in the second half. Shut out the Gator offense in that second half. Actually outscored them for good measure as well. Kedron Smith took advantage of a miscommunication uh, between Anthony Richardson and his wide receiver. Classic INT on a short outside throw. Smith had a full head of steam going the opposite direction when he caught it and was off to the races for the, for the pick six. I think Anthony Richardson put up a, a valiant effort on the tackle, but ultimately, Kedron Smith made him miss, got the pick six, and that's how Kentucky's defense outscored Florida's offense in the second half. Florida Florida's second half drive results are as follows. Punt, pick six, punt, turnover on downs, turnover on downs, and end of game, respectively, Utter dominance from the Kentucky uh, defense in the second half. Some notable performances. I mean, impressive performance by the Kentucky defense to absolutely stifle Anthony Richardson first off. That's the most impressive performance. I mean, he had four touchdowns in the game versus Utah last week. I mean, you absolutely stifle him in this one. Only had, only going 14 of 35, just 40% completion. 143 yards, just four yards per attempt. No touchdowns. Two interceptions to boot in this one absolutely dominated him. And then Will Levis, maybe the the first overall pick with, I mean, he is an absolute specimen. Maybe the most 
jacked quarterback in the entire uh, college football right now. He is he's a big dude. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I realize just how big Will Levis over the past what or Will Levis is or Will Levis was over the past couple seasons. But I mean, looking at him now, my God, he's legit jacked. I mean, he is built like an old school middle linebacker that you don't ask to move around a whole lot, just like lower the crown of his helmet and just inflict pain on opposing running backs and wide receivers across the middle. I mean, he's built exactly like that. I mean, I don't know. He he seems to be, I mean, I find him very entertaining. He seems to have a very good personality. That being said, may have to improve the, uh, the maturity a little bit at the next level. I mean, I love to see it. Love to see him trash talking the fans, waving goodbye to him uh, in the swamp. That being said, you don't see a whole lot of that at the next level. You see that kind of tampered down a little bit. Obviously, you've seen Baker Mayfield do it to a certain extent, but uh, hasn't gone necessarily great for Baker Mayfield, so maybe not the best thing you want to do. That being said, Will Levis had himself a solid game in this one. I mean, only 54% completion, uh, 13 to 24 attempts, so a little pedestrian in that category, but 202 yards, so... 8.4 yards per attempt, even if the numbers aren't necessarily the greatest in the world. 8.4, you are slinging the ball there. Uh, one TD, one interception. That one TD came on a long 55-yard bomb to Dane Key. Um, really, the Kentucky offense wasn't great, but they did just enough to uh, outlast Florida in this one. In the backfield uh, for Kentucky, it was basically all Cavassier smoke. Uh, 14 rushes, 80 yards. That is Ooh, really tested my math skills on this one. Five yards per attempt, I believe? Nope, totally wrong. It's it's between five and six. Ha-ha, going to run past this. Either way, I know I definitely said this in, in uh, last year whenever Cavassier Smoke came up. His parents definitely partied. If you're, if you're naming your kid Cavassier with a last name of Smoke, you party. That That's for goddamn certain. Really, you put a giant neon flashing sign up above uh, Cavassier smokes head saying my parents did a lot of drugs back in the day. That's, that's basically the main gist of it. Uh, had a solid, solid game though. Better than any of the, uh, any of the Florida backs though. Those Florida backs combined had a solid, solid day. All things considered Trevor Etienne, uh, brother of current Jaguars, former Clemson running back, Travis Etienne had nine rushes, 46 yards, a solid four and a half yards per attempt with a TD to boot. Uh, also, Montrell Johnson Jr., who he, he seems to be splitting the backfield duties with, uh, seven rushes, 62 yards, so 8.9 yards per carry. Solid, solid there. Um, that being said, quiet in the second half. Kentucky really turned on the Jets, put the clamps on them in that second half, made them mostly ineffectual. Um, Kentucky, really the only wide receiver worth mentioning in this one because, I mean, Florida had basically no one on the outside. Uh, Dane Key, who caught that 55-yard bomb from Will, Will Levis in the first half, ended up with three receptions, 53 yards, and that aforementioned TD. Really, really solid win for uh, for Kentucky. I don't know if Florida was necessarily as good as their number 12 ranking would have you believe. I think that's just kind of early season bias right now. But having having him in the fold at the moment, or not, I don't, I don't even know what I was saying. Having him in the fold, I was talking about an entire team. That was, wow, chose the wrong words in that one. But still a solid Florida team. I think ultimately they're more of a back end of the top 25, pushing top 25 sort of team, which 
to go into their house, very hostile environment in the swamp, and to basically dominate when it mattered most. And you got a quarterback definitely going to be a first-round pick, if nothing else. Maybe the number one overall pick. Very experienced quarterback at that. That That is something you're cooking with gas at that point. We'll get to the, the rankings here in a bit, but there's a reason why they've jumped so far up the rankings with this win. Moving on from a party in the southeast to a holy war in the far west here. We have got the Mormons winning the holy war over the Baptists. Number 21, BYU, beating number 9, Baylor in double overtime, 26-20. I went into this one fully expecting Baylor to give these nice little Mormon boys the hands, and I was sorely mistaken. BYU came out and surprised me. It was close all the way through. I was obviously watching, I mean, in in purgatory, in hell, watching my, my, my sweet, sweet, sweet Bulldogs, Jack, that sweet, sweet boy, of a mascot over there. They, they kicked off at 11 p.m., so I was watching basically that one the entire, uh, as it was getting good for the Baylor-BYU game. I digress on that front, though. It was a tough physical matchup with neither offense really making any big mistakes, but also neither offense particularly playing well as well. I mean, both BYU and Baylor, I mean, specifically Baylor, when you got Dave Aranda as your head coach coming off the season they had last year, very, very solid defensive teams. Both of them held their own in this one. Uh, after playing to a scoreless stalemate over the final 10 minutes of regulation and trading missed field goals in the first overtime, BYU finally got a dagger touchdown in the second overtime to go ahead before their defense clinched it on the other side of the ball. Senior running back Lopini Katoa ran, ran it in from three yards out to seal the game. I believe they missed the... Uh, I guess in in, set, in the second overtime, you have to do two-point conversions, so they missed the two-point conversion on that one, but got the TD. That's all that matters. Had that thrilling end with the, with the Holy War there. I mean, does this prove Mormon superiority over the Baptists? I think it matters by region. I think coming into Mormon land, I mean, it's a lot like the Christians going into the Holy Land to take back Jerusalem from the Muslims. I mean, the Muslims, not only were they fighting a home war. They had better better technology, better military tactics. Either way, that's besides the point in this one. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of the same sort of, a lot of the same sort of dynamic in this one. I mean, Baylor's coming across country, moving out of their their central time zone. Te- central time zone, easy for me to say. Moving into the mountain time zone, going up against those those Mormons, fighting the home battle fighting an existential battle, whereas you're just coming to, to take the, the Holy Land from the Mormons. I mean, you got to think, this is just a, a statement statement win for the Mormons in the first Baptist crusade here. Uh, notable for performances in the game. QB Blake Shapin, uh, 18 of 28, that's 64% for you doing the quick math at home. Only 137 yards, which is just short of five yards per attempt. Probably not going to cut it in that category. Uh, one TD, no turnovers, though. So, again, if you're not going to have a great game, at least don't shoot the team in the foot. That's all you can ask for at the end of the day. Uh, especially when you got, I mean, in college it matters a whole lot less because everything is just straight-up chaos. That's why we love the sport. But, uh when you got a great defense on the other side like Baylor does, you don't need Blake Shapin to be an all-star. Just don't don't destroy the team's chances of winning. On the other side, Jaron Hall had a bit more uh, a, a bit more of a standout performance. Still not great, but uh, 23 of 39, just short of 60% there on the completion. Uh, 
261 yards, uh, 6.7 yards per attempt, so not great there, but better than what Blake Shapin put out there. Um, also got one touchdown, zero turnover, so a solid performance overall, even if you didn't uh, cross that 60% completion plateau. Uh, definitely outper outperformed Blake Shapin in this one, and not necessarily that it showed in the scoreboard, but in the end, I feel like having Jaron Hall over Blake Shapin was an asset that got him a little bit of an edge in that second overtime to win it. Uh, for the running backs, really the only one of note here was Baylor's Kualan Jones uh, going 16 rushes, 67 yards, but two touchdowns in this one. As far as receivers, the only one that really had any standout performance, and it was a standout performance for the ages here, wide receiver Chase Roberts, eight receptions, 182 yards, uh, and this is BYU wide receiver Chase Roberts, uh, one touchdown to boot with that 122 yards. Also attempted one pass on a trick play at the end of the first half. Uh, made one completion, 22 yards, and a touchdown through the air with just two seconds left in that first half. Chase Roberts, really the guy that kept them in this game, even more than Jaron Hall. I mean, equaled his passing touchdown total if you want to be technical about it. Definitely had a better uh, passer rating when it's all said and done. Uh, but even with his contributions through the air, basically getting accounting for half of Jaron Hall's production, more than you could have ever asked for out of Chase Roberts. Really the player that was the difference maker in this game for BYU. Again, gotta love if you're a BYU fan. If you're a Mormon, you defended the Holy Land. You defended Utah. And you, you defended your honor in the face of opposition from the Baptist Crusade. This will not be the last Crusade. If there's anything we learned from the Crusades is there's never just one, but winning that first Crusade likely means you'll win all subsequent Crusades after that if the real-life Crusades have anything to do with it. Uh, with that said, I digress away from that, that dumb line of thinking to Washington State beating number 19, Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, disappointing one for Wisconsin here. The, the day was so crazy. This one kind of flew under the radar for me. Uh, but it was a classic Big Ten football game uh, as it was bookended by scoreless quarters in the first and the fourth. All scoring action occurred in that middle half uh, in that third or second and third quarter. Uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin actually scored all their points in the second quarter alone with two touchdowns. Uh, two touchdown passes to tight end Clay Cundiff, which, what a name. That's a guy that was born to play uh, college football at either Wisconsin or Iowa. You know, one of the white universities, essentially. Uh, Wazoo essentially won the game on the back of a 10-point surge in the third quarter that saw Nakia Watson score his second touchdown of the game on a 31-yard catch and run uh, with 5-12 to go in that third quarter Uh Wisconsin actually dominated on the stat sheet. They outgained was Wazoo by nearly 150 yards, most notably outrushing them 174 to 53. Uh, Wisconsin had 22 first downs compared to 10 for Wazoo. Wisconsin had a better yards per attempt and nearly doubled Wazoo's yards per carry as a team as well. And to put the capper on it, Wisconsin also possessed the ball for 16 more minutes than Wazoo, holding it for 38 minutes, 2 seconds, compared to Wazoo's 21 minutes, 58 seconds. What killed Wisconsin was penalties and turnovers. They had 11 penalties and 106 penalty yards compared to just 5 for 50 on Wazoo's side. They didn't lose the turnover battle, but they, they tied... Uh, Wazoo with three turnovers, which is just 
too, too many if they didn't, if they wanted to not lose the turn, uh, even if they didn't lose the turnover battle. Jesus Christ, I am just stumbling through this one here. Uh, either way, notable performers uh, on the quarterback front, Graham Mertz for Wisconsin had a lackluster sort of game, really average on the whole, uh, 18 to 31, that's 58% completion, uh, 20. 227 yards through the air and 7.3 yards per attempt. Uh, two touchdowns, one interception. Uh, on the other side, quarterback Cameron Ward for Washington State had 17 to 28. Uh, so just just over that 60% completion percentage. Uh, Mendoza line, 200 yards through the air, 7.1 yards per attempt. Uh, did have two interceptions, though, to go with that one touchdown he threw. So not quite as efficient as, as Graham Mertz was. I mean, just just added to the list of, of weird ways that Wisconsin ended up beating Wazoo on the stat sheet but losing the game. Uh, Wisconsin running back, star running back, Braylon Allen, uh, had 21 runs, 98 yards, which pedestrian for him, 4.7 yards per carry. Used to him getting 7, 8, sometimes even 10 yards per carry. He's just so, he's such a, maybe the best back that Wisconsin's had in there in this run of backs that they've had. I mean, absolutely incredible what Braylon Allen's been able to do for for Washington State to hold Braylon Allen under 100 rushing yards, I mean that is something that is something not to sneeze at. If if you're looking at this game, impressive performance from Wazoo on that front. Um, that being said, Braylon Allen did end up getting two receptions, 12 yards, so did cross the uh, the 100 yard mark from the from the yards per scrimmage perspective, yards from scrimmage perspective. Um, so you know. Not the worst game in the world. Still not the uh, the level of performance that we've come to expect from Braylon Allen. But when you're not really threatening through the air, that that's kind of what happens in the end. Um, Washington State running back Nikhil Watson, 10 rushes, 33 yards. So not great there, 3.3 yards per carry. But did have one rushing touchdown and caught that one pass for 31 yards in a touchdown as well. Uh, accounting for, let me check. Yup, all of the touchdowns for Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, for Wazoo in this one. Um, really the player of the game, Nakia Watson, for Wazoo. Uh, Wisconsin, the really the one um, receiving threat in this game, sorry, kind of phrased that as dumb as possible, for really either team was tight end Clay Cundiff, that I mentioned before, four receptions, 59 yards, two touchdowns, did lose one fumble, which kind of speaks to what I was harping on before, which was too many turnovers, too many penalties, too many, too many mental lapses there. Uh, but still caught, you know, all the touchdown passes from Graham Mertz. So that's, that's something, I mean, again, Wisconsin, another place that you expect good tight ends to come out of, at least I'm pretty sure might be talking out of my ass on that one, but talking out of my ass just means time to move on to the next game. Shall we? Uh, Iowa falling to one and one in absolute slot fest this season as Iowa state wins on the road in an absolute barn burner. I believe the final score was 10-7. Really just high-octane offense on both sides of the ball here. Uh, it's the showdown we've all been clamoring for. Big ol' white boys versus big ol' white boys. Uh, it's the battle for the cornfields and beautiful Iowa City, ladies and gentlemen. And this one went about how last week went for Iowa, except there was, you know, not just one, but multiple touchdowns score, an absolute offensive explosion in this game. Uh, two touchdowns, to be exact, compared to the zero that were scored in the week one. Almost said one because Iowa had seven, but that's a tricky seven because they had they had a, a 
safety and two, I don't know, two safeties and, and, and a field goal. I don't know. I, I, I was spared from watching that Iowa game last week, so I, don't, I prefer not to dwell on it. That being said, uh, they also, you know, also lost, so it didn't go quite as well as uh, last week did. Hilarious stat of the game for me. Iowa State only gained 313 total yards on offense, so not a great offensive production there. And they still had more than double Iowa's offense. Shout out to Padres alma mater for winning a back alley pub brawl in this one. That is precisely what it was. Some notable performers in this one at QB. Iowa's Spencer Petrus, still somehow in college. I feel like he's been there for about a decade at this point, give or take. But I feel like all Iowa quarterbacks kind of feel that way. Also, all Iowa quarterbacks are kind of throwbacks to the 1980s because Kirk Kirk Ferentz is still strangling that offense, but I digress. Uh, Spencer Petrus went 12 of 26, so just below 50%. 92 yards, so... Not even good running back numbers, Not 3.5 yards per attempt, just putrid all over. Also, not only did he not uh, get you any touchdowns, threw an interception, lost a fumble, so zero touchdowns, two turnovers, only four receivers ended up catching a pass with two-thirds of the completions going to Sam Laporta alone. Spencer Petrus is bad, not going to sugarcoat it in this one. He is not good uh, whatsoever, really you think Iowa would go to the, the bullpen? That being said, maybe the bullpen's not very strong. Maybe there's a reason that Spencer Petrus is starting, and maybe that reason is because he is horrifyingly, if you're an Iowa fan, uh, the best quarterback in that room. So, hey, have fun with that. On on Iowa State's side, I mean, it wasn't an all-star performance, but Hunter Deckers was at least, uh, well, I would say serviceable, but he did turn the ball over too damn much. Uh 25 of 38, so 66, we'll call it. Completion percentage, a little bit short of that. Uh, 184 yards, though, so a little short of five yards per attempt. Again, good good running back numbers, bad quarterback numbers. Also, one to two touchdown to interception ratio, ratio, so head and shoulders better than Spencer Petrus, but I think that's saying more about Spencer Petrus uh, than complimenting Hunter Deckers in this one. Uh, outside of that, Really sloppy game all around. No one really had a, a great game. Really, it was only uh, Xavier Hutchinson for ISU, who we'll talk about in a second. But uh, in the backfield, Iowa, LaShawn Williams had 14 rushes. Well, <laughs> yep, LaShawn Williams found himself in possession of 14 rushes, uh, but had 14 rushes, 34 yards, one TD. Uh, Iowa's only TD in the game. And uh, on the other side, uh, Iowa State running back at least had over 100 yards. Uh, Jarrell Brock on 27 rushes, though, so just under four yards per carry. Not necessarily the most efficient in the world. Did have five receptions for just 18 yards out of the backfield, but those five receptions are crucial, if nothing else. Um, for Iowa, the one the one big receiving star for him was Sam Laporta. He did have eight receptions, but at the same time, only 55 yards. Uh, again, another one of those great running back numbers, but... If you're looking for a tight end, I mean, maybe being a security blanket, you get less yards per per catch there, but still, come on, guys. I mean, 8 for 55, not the most efficient uh, stat line in the world if you're if you're Sam Laporta there. Uh, as far as the, the final performer, really the only very good performer in this game was Iowa State wide receiver Xavier Hutchinson. Had 11 receptions for just short of 100 yards, went for 98 uh, with the touchdown, 
in this one. The only offensive touchdown for Iowa State. Uh, so really, yeah, he was the only star in this one. Another game back-to-back for Iowa where if you watch this, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just so, so sorry. Uh, not a great one. Really, you're grinding that one out to the very, very end just to get to the end if you're an Iowa or an Iowa State fan for that matter. But hey, shout out to the Padres alma mater for pulling out a win there in Iowa City in hostile territory. Tell those kids at the Children's Hospital to go fuck themselves because their teams are a loser. Uh, that being said, moving on on that uplifting note to Mississippi State beating Arizona soundly in a game that started uh, entirely too goddamn late. This Saturday morning, this is Saturday morning, Caleb. Speaking to you through present day, Caleb, interesting how time travel works like that. I love my Mississippi State Bulldogs, but an 11 p.m. kickoff has got me questioning just how much I love this team. All I can hope is that that this is over by halftime, uh, but the line is only 10 and a half, uh, so somehow I doubt that that will be the case. And coming back to reality here, that did not happen. That did not happen at all. So I, I slugged some caffeine, stayed up till 3 a.m. watching this thing. I felt like dog shit waking up in the morning uh, to go to work the next day, but God damn it, I did it because I, I had to watch my boys play. I mean, either way, Jaden Delora playing like an absolute madman out there, trying to get a first down or a touchdown on every throw, really playing like if he doesn't get a first down or a touchdown on every throw, that someone will execute a close relative of his. This man threw some of the most reckless passes I've ever seen outside of maybe Carson Wentz throwing basically what amounts to a Hail Mary with 12 minutes left in the third quarter in a game last year. Wild, wild decision on that one. But it was fun to watch from the opposing perspective, if nothing else. I mean, kept me awake and energized at 1.30 a.m. when the fourth quarter was just starting up. And uh, I was crying because I was so goddamn tired, but I still had to stay up and support the boys. Uh, that being said, not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one because the final score was like 38 to 17 or something like that. Ended up pulling away big time. I went to bed with about five minutes left because uh, Caleb Ducking, my my namesake, my my guy looks exactly like me, me and Caleb Ducking. Go look up a, a picture of that guy and tell me we aren't spitting images of one another. Uh, but once he caught that touchdown with five or six minutes left to go up three touchdowns, uh, my happy ass went straight to bed. And by straight to bed, I mean... Uh, went up to bed at about 2.45 and uh, sat on my phone scrolling through Twitter for another 15, 20 minutes uh, looking at, at updates before I eventually closed my eyes and had mercy on my body. Uh, that being said, great win for Mississippi State heading into next week. Uh, in Death Valley, I believe, with that fucking kicking situation we got, not looking forward to that, going up against LSU. Probably caught him at a great time because I think by the end of the year, not going to be the team that we're playing now, LSU. So, yeah, good time to get him. Excited to uh, go up against LSU again this year. I think Mississippi State's got a squad, and if they can beat LSU, I think there's no reason to think they won't be ranked at least in the back end of the top 25 uh, come this time next week. But some notable performers in this game, as I was saying before, the quarterbacks, Mississippi State, obviously, Will Rogers, another fantastic studly game out there 39 of 49 that's just short of 80 percent uh, on the completion percentage uh 313 yards so you know only 6.4 yards per attempt but in that air raid scheme you're gonna have a, a lower yards per attempt that's just the way it works uh four touchdown passes though one interception really 
absolute stud he's been, completely mastered this Mike Leach offense and translated it as beautifully as you possibly can into, into I mean, we'll have to see how it works this season in the SEC, but, I mean, with the mastery of the offense, with the experience, I feel very, very good about it. On the other side, Jaden Delora, who we talked about, the madman himself, 23 of 51, so just over 50% completion there. Uh, 220 yards, so just just short of five yards per attempt. Not going to cut it there. Uh, one TD through three interceptions, which cannot thank him enough for doing so in this game. Made it much easier to stay awake when it was all said and done. Um, in the backfield for Mississippi State, it's always been a two-headed monster between Woody Marks and Dylan Johnson. Uh, Woody Marks had a solid game in this one. Eight rushes, 53 yards, and that's a 6.6 yards per attempt. Also had a, you know, one rushing touchdown. Uh, contributed five receptions for 19 yards as well through the air. And Dylan Johnson actually had a more prolific game in this one. Had a bit more higher usage as well. See if that's really just a, a trend because they were going up against Arizona or if that's going to be a trend going forward. But Dylan Johnson had 11 rushes for 60 yards. No touchdowns, but did also have more receptions. Six receptions, one more reception than Woody Mark had for 34 yards, which is just about uh, double what, what Woody Marks had. So really solid, solid performance from the backfield in general. I mean, hitting just off the top of my head here, he got, um, I mean, really over 150, 160 total yards from scrimmage out of that backfield. So all you can ask for from them. Uh, for Arizona, running back Michael Wiley was really the only uh, notable sort of running back that, that came out of this one. Um, six rushes, 49 yards, so eight, a little over eight yards per attempt there. Uh, one touchdown to boot. Also had four receptions for 54 yards. Ended up with 10.3 yards per touch. I mean, Wiley was by far the best player on Arizona in this one. Uh, had one of one of two touchdowns for, for Arizona in this one. So, I think I kind of forgot to put in the wide receivers in this one. Caleb Ducking had two touchdowns. Austin Williams had two touchdowns for Mississippi State. Just plucked that out of the air off the top of my head. Feeling good about my memory now. In this one, again, restressing it here. Great win for Mississippi State. Doesn't ultimately mean shit because Arizona isn't that good of a team. Uh, still improved from what they were over the last couple seasons, though. So, solid statement win here. We're going to see what they're really made of going into Death Valley this coming weekend. Cannot wait to see what happens there. And with that, that'll get you through updated... Uh, all the way through the, the college football games that mattered going through this week. I probably missed a game here or there, but I'll, I'll get back to them if they end up making some waves. Uh, with that said, the new AP Top 10 coming out of this week was UGA at number one coming up a spot, taking Bama's spot at one after beating Sanford uh, 33 to nothing. But that was less based on that 33 nothing win than it was uh, Alabama coming in here at number two, barely beating Texas 20 to 19. You kind of got to fall down one when UGA is playing as well as they are, are as talented as they are at one and two. Really, it's Ohio State and Alabama at that one and two and everyone else after that. But Ohio State at number three, I mean, 45 to 12 beating Arkansas State. I mean, no no change there. No reason to change when you're playing an, an FCS opponent. Um, with with C.J. Stroud at, at quarterback, uh the weapons they got at wide receiver, most notably Jackson Smith and Jigba, whenever he decides to come back, well, not decides, whenever he comes back to the lineup, is reinserted into that lineup. Um, 
Maybe that offense has the high-octane ability to come in there, make some noise in addition to that UGA-Alabama pairing. But it's really those two head and shoulders above everyone else, if we're being honest here. Uh, Down at four, after we had Ohio State at three, we got Michigan, who beat the brakes off of Hawaii 56-10. No change there from last week. Uh, Another no change from last week. Uh, Clemson, still number five because they keep winning. That that brand really can only go so far, though. They're gonna lose one of these at one point, but I digress. They they beat Furman thirty-five to twelve. Really, just an icky, nasty offensive performance. And again, they don't. Well, not again. This is just pointing out they don't have Brent Venables anymore. So that was the one thing that was keeping uh, Dabo afloat for the most part. We'll have to see how that defense progresses. Uh, the farther we get away from the Brent Venables tenure in Clemson. Uh, That being said, uh, they didn't move at all at number five. At number six, Oklahoma is up one after beating Kent uh, 33-3, Caleb Williams. That's one we didn't talk about. Well, actually, no, 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 that's next one up. (laughs) Oklahoma does not have Caleb Williams anymore because there was a mass exodus of players once once Lincoln Riley skipped town back in the day. So I digress on that front. Oklahoma just just going up one uh, with, I would assume, uh, well, I guess Notre Dame was below them, so I'm not sure exactly who they usurped there in that time. Oh, yeah, it was Texas A&M. What am I talking about? They they took Texas A&M spot at six. Uh, That being said, at seven, Biggest riser, well, actually not the biggest riser in the top 10. Actually, all of these these last four in the top 10 are big, big risers. USC up three spots uh, from the 10 where they were at last year after they beat Stanford 41-28. to And Kayla Williams in this one was very impressive. Wasn't playing for Oklahoma, is playing for USC for Lincoln Riley. Had four touchdowns, I believe like 12 yards per attempt, like 300-some yards passing. Uh, no turnovers to boot. He was lights out. Uh Probably a big reason why they moved up three spots in this one, in addition to all the chaos that happened in front of them this week. Uh, That slots them in at number seven. At number eight, Oklahoma State, the mad mullet himself, putting together another solid solid season, uh, watching One American News, knowing the truth, coming out there, preaching that truth to his players, and just leading them to uh, season after season of good performance there at Oklahoma State. They're up three from last week. They were just outside of the top 10 at number 11. Uh, this comes after beating Arizona State 34-17 to solid. Uh, Her, uh, Herm Edwards, that is, almost said Herb Meyer. That was an interesting, interesting little... Uh, Interesting little uh, amalgamation of Urban Meyer and Herm Edwards. But Herm Edwards, a a bit more of a respectable human being as far as I'm concerned, uh, always seems to be uh, 7-5 pretty consistently over there at Arizona State. Always seems to be the team that's a a good out-of-conference test for somebody that you can go in there, beat by a solid margin, it'll make you look, you know, pretty solid. So, hey, that's exactly what Oklahoma State did. Up three spots from last week after that win. At number nine, biggest riser of them all, Kentucky up 11 spots from 20 to take that number nine spot after that big win against uh, last week's number 12, uh, University of Florida, 26 to 16. And coming in at number 10, newcomer up six from where they were last year, not last year, last um, last week rather, Arkansas rounding out that top 10 after beating South Carolina 44 to 30. And I mean, I don't know if South Carolina's offense is that good. Arkansas might just be an over machine. That's something to keep in mind. Add that to the list of over machines. Uh, In addition to UNC, that's the other over machine that I have in college football right now. With that said, though, that rounds out the top 10. And I'm just by my count, I've got uh, one, two, three, 
four SEC teams in the top 10. Uh, two of those SEC teams being in the SEC. Well, obviously the other two being in the SEC East, so that's not saying too, too much. Uh, but that being said, SEC as strong as ever. Well, who who's? Well, I mean, you, you don't need me to say that. I mean, this is quite clear what it is right now. Uh, that is your new top 10, though. From the top, it is from 1 to 10, respectively, at number 1, UGA, number 2, Bama, number 3, Ohio State, number 4, Michigan, number 5, Clemson, number 6, Oklahoma, number 7, USC, number 8, Oklahoma State, number 9, Kentucky, and number 10, Arkansas. And with that, Hmm, I was going to do a get a load of this shit, but I think we're at a perfect time to just kind of cut out right now. I think if I do that that extra article, just going to be too, too much. So with that said, cutting it off there, that is all for this episode. If you enjoyed, subscribe, leave a five-star rating so we can grow this bad boy a little bit. If you didn't enjoy it, just keep removing my guy and or girl. No one's asking for your opinion. And if you do give your opinion, I will find you. Uh, but like, you know, tell people it was good anyways. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to find you. Uh, that being said, I release two episodes a week during the football season. You better listen to those two. Um, otherwise I'm going to find you. I mean, it's just, it just is what it is. I'm going to keep reiterating that. Also not true. Totally toothless claim. Um, you know, not, not a real threat. So don't come after me. Okay. Okay. Uh, two episodes a week during the football season, NFL on Tuesdays, college football, uh, plus Monday night football recap on Thursdays. Like we just had today, just went through the first full week of that gotta love that that schedule man gotta love awesome being back in the in the season uh any additions or changes i will let you all know as they occur follow me on all my socials at caleb verzak link will be in the description so you don't have to spell my fucked up eastern block name uh if you want to contact the show shoot me an email at unqualified analysis at gmail.com that's unqualified analysis at gmail.com uh just put in in all caps business or show to start the subject line so you can be categorized appropriately. Thank you so much for tuning into Unqualified Analysis. And as always, I've got no clue what I'm talking about. And one thing I learned this week coming out of the gates, well, not coming out of the gates, closing the gates rather, on the way out, uh, the Hollywood sign that is now the symbol of Los Angeles. I put Los Angeles like Las Vegas. That's a hell of a typo there, but it's... As I was saying, the Hollywood sign that is now the symbol of Los Angeles was originally just an advertisement for a subdivision in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, the sign originally actually read Hollywood Land because that was the name of the neighborhood. It was advertising. It was like directly above the neighborhood it was advertising. So it was literally just some real estate developers being like, all right, we have the land. Let's let's sell some houses here by putting up a, a big old advertisement for our subdivision. And it uh, seemed to work. I think the Hollywood land uh, neighborhood is actually still up there in the hills. Uh, still got people living in it. I mean, it's prime real estate. I don't know why there wouldn't be people living in it anymore. But uh, over the years, uh, the sign fell into disrepair, changed ownership multiple times, uh, was built in 1923. And then from 1923 to, I believe it was 1978, kind of bounced around ownership, switched hands, kind of slowly fell into into disrepair. Uh because the you know cost for maintaining the sign uh, just too too prohibitive for a lot of people to really put in a lot of effort for it. In the late 70s, I, like I said, I believe in 1978, the city of LA voted to take over ownership. I believe they eminent domain that sucker out of there. Uh, uh, probably gave them a pretty solid, generous price. I believe it was in the in the hundreds of thousands that they ended up uh, giving them, which is a premium over what the land and, and the sign was actually worth at the time. Uh, but they voted to take over ownership and maintenance of the sign, tore down the old letters, 
constructed a new sign with more durable materials and dropped a land from the sign uh, to essentially make it what we see now today in Los Angeles. So with that, see y'all next week. Enjoy this weekend of football, ladies and gentlemen.